I'm Catherine Spearing, and this is Uncertain. Today I'm speaking with Heather Gargis, gifted trauma therapist residing in St. Louis, Missouri. We really do need to have certain types of training that is trauma-informed and gives us a better understanding to be equipped to handle abuse and neglect and all sorts of things that show up in the church because it's already there. She'll be sharing about abuse in the church, both from her perspective as a therapist and also from her own experience. I'll give a trigger warning here as this episode references sexual abuse and child abuse. How comfortable do you feel just talking about your family of origin and your story? Yeah, I mean, I feel decently comfortable. Um, I think that I'm at a place where I can decipher how much I want to say, knowing yes. that this will be public. Yes. Um, so I feel pretty good with being able to to say, like, this is my boundary with my story just because just in case a client gets a hold of it or whatever. Right. Um, but I also want to be transparent, too. You know, something that some of my clients know, but not all of them. Um, so there'll be times in um, my sessions that I'll say to my clients, like, we as abuse survivors – and so in that small glimpse, they know that I'm one too, mm-hmm. you know, but I don't put the, I don't really go into my story with them at all, but right. they do know that, um, or at least some of them know that I come from that story. And I think it's really helpful when you are an abuse mm-hmm. survivor to know that your therapist is one too. Yeah. So they're, they're not. Oh, wow. Yeah. I'm not yeah. by myself. It's like right. more camaraderie. Like it's yeah. not an isolation thing. And you do feel like there's something intrinsically wrong with me mm-hmm. as an abuse survivor, but to know my therapist, mm-hmm. who is in more or less a position of authority right now in this mm-hmm. space, right, knows exactly what that's like. Right. To Absolutely. feel like there's something intrinsically broken. Um, yeah. So family of origin. It's a great... Um great starting point. Um, yeah, so I, uh, family of origin is just a really, um, complex situation. Um, my dad's side of the family, I don't have a lot of information on his side of the family, except for that his dad was a pretty awful person. I think was a highly influential character in, um, creating who my dad was. So my dad um, was never, you know, diagnosed by professional, but um, he was most likely a sociopath. And so um, his dad was one that really helped craft him into, into that. And so. um, Do you mind defining a sociopath or kind of giving a rundown of what that is. Yeah. So, um, when I say sociopath or 
use that to define my dad. You know, I'm, I'm describing what the, what the DSM would now label like antisocial personality disorder. My dad really did not have any empathy. He could not empathize. He could, um, recreate emotions, but they weren't his. So he knew how to create sadness or create apologies, but they weren't ever actually true. His nature just didn't allow him and his nurture didn't allow him. You know, it's a, it's a combo. Nature and nurture just did not allow him to feel um, his own true feelings. And I think that that's a coupling of trauma and of just a predisposition to um, this type of personality disorder. There are times that, you know, I would see, so my, my dad had some, so he's on the spectrum of, of being a sociopath as well as um, on the spectrum with narcissism. Um, definitely have narcissistic personality disorder as well. And um, was also a sex addict and addicted to cocaine. And so there was just all of these different aspects of himself that really created, created a, a type of person that was just really dangerous, to say the least, um, with just the choices that he made and um, all of the things that he, he experienced as a person. And so, yeah, so that was kind of my dad's side of the family. Um, and my dad was the youngest of three. And so just had a lot of, yeah, just really probably confusing and manipulative influences to create who he was. Yeah. And so then like my mom's side was very poor South. Um, my grandmother grew up in an orphanage. And um, so there's just a lot of poverty and trauma and attachment issues. And, um, and so my mom just really struggled to ever be able to know herself and, and really struggled to even know what she believes. And I think she really can find herself being a chameleon mm -hmm. and just kind of adapting to what needs to be needs to be. And so that's that survivor mentality that, um, it is hard to, to get to know her and to know my mom because, um, I'm, I'm not sure if she knows who she is. Yeah. She hasn't worked on her story, let alone her marriage with my dad, let alone all of that trauma. And so when all of that stays within a person, you, you are always surviving you're always in survival mode with, with that, um, mom, yeah, my parents were married and I'm the oldest, uh, five. So there's four younger than me. Um, and growing up was just very interesting. Um, you know, for, for me and my family, um, <laughs> interesting word to use. Yeah. It's very interesting. Very interesting. Um, so for Foreshadowing. Me and my siblings, yeah, right. You know, for me and my siblings, it, it seemed normal. And I'm going to like quote, like quotation, like normal, because that's all we knew. Um, but in reality, it was pretty, um, 
it was very confusing, very manipulative. My dad, you never really knew who you were going to get coming through the door. Um, so that was always like, everyone's always on edge. So me and the three younger than me were really a, a pretty tight unit growing up us four were really tight and, you know, to survive an abusive household. Um, so my dad was very abusive in many different ways. Um, well, actually all the ways that you can be abusive physically, sexually, emotionally, and spiritually. Um, he hit all categories. And so, um, we really had to figure out how to survive as a unit. And so we were a pack and had to function as one in order to, in order to survive, you know, it was very confusing to wake up every morning and see my dad sitting in his rocking chair, reading the Bible. And then, you know, yeah. And then, you know, who knows what he's going to do later that day, whether, you know, it's some sort of really terrible punishment or, um, something inappropriate with one of his children or, you know, like you just don't know. So it was a really confusing statement of like, Oh, like dad's reading the Bible every morning. I don't know what to do with that. Um, he was also an elder of our church and he was an elder. Yes. I was. did not know he was an elder because you go through a vetting process Elders and deacons, when I was younger, were one and the same. Later on in, um, in my childhood, when my church ended up splitting when I was 13, dad was a deacon there. Got it. Um, and that had more of a, at least what I'm remembering, I could totally be wrong, but that had more of a... To become an elder, it had more of a process at that point. Okay. But when I was little, um, like my dad taught Sunday school and um, he coached my upward basketball team and, you know, we were heavily involved in church, even though he had all of these issues. He was very good at convincing people with what he wanted them to know about him. That was, a, that was, that's the main question going through my head, even though I know the answer to it, because I've seen it happen so many times, Yeah, is what do you think allowed them to miss that? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, that's a great question. I think one of the, one of the key components is that when working with and understanding a sociopath, Sometimes they're just incredibly crafty. And unfortunately, can get away with a lot of things. Yeah. So, so the, the judge that um, did our case, he said in the courtroom that throughout his entire career, and he had been a judge for 30 years, he had never met somebody who could manipulate like my dad could. And this is when charges were being filed against your dad. And he said that your dad was a great manipulator. Yeah. And so I would say that, you know, unfortunately. He was a great manipulator. He was a great manipulator. Yeah. 
And I think, you know, so that's a big part of it, I think. But then when it comes to the church, I would say that sometimes it's scary to ask hard questions. And from the church perspective. From the church, like from people from the church. So it's like, okay, so my dad um, would borrow money from a friend who was also an elder at the church several times to try to make ends meet or whatever, which what my dad was spending that on was like prostitutes and cocaine. And, wow. and so, you know, this happened multiple, multiple times. And, you know, I think that that was maybe a missed opportunity for deeper questions of, you know, how is Brad, my dad, how is Brad unable to support his family? Like, let's look at his budget. Let's, you know, like, how do we actually know that what he's saying? And I'm not saying like we should always distrust people, right. but there are really good follow-up questions as, as friends and as believers that if something is happening repetitively, mm-hmm. that we should, we should take a moment to, to assess and be like, okay, so yes, Brad has five kids. That's a lot for sure. He has a decent job. His wife does work. So is there something that, that we don't know about? Like, is he in debt and he's just too embarrassed to tell, you know, like there's all these questions that could have been asked, but unfortunately weren't. And so with that, I think, you know, it is a call to, when we have people in leadership, like what does mm-hmm. accountability look like? Like, yeah. you know, in, in any sort of spectrum. Um, mm-hmm. Side note, I, in my church staffing experience, I, I noticed that when I, when I would interview for the position, if there were anything that was like a yellow flag, mm-hmm. like slight yellow flag, that ended up being a major red flag down the road. Mm -hmm. And I think this is what you're saying, just in these situations, in these relational situations, from a church perspective, if there's a yellow flag, that's worth paying attention to. Absolutely. And and monitoring, just even if you just monitor it internally, and like I'm paying attention to that. Mm-hmm. And, and there might be an opportunity to inquire later. Mm-hmm. And in my personal situation, when I did, it exploded. However, that would have happened probably in this probably. situation with your dad. Mm-hmm. He probably would have exploded. He probably would have left the church. He probably, you know, there are a lot of things that could have happened with that. It's important to, to look at those yellow flags, look at the, the things that you know, you have that gut feeling of something feels a little off. I'm not really sure what it is. It's like, there's no shame or guilt in following that flag, you know, (laughs) to be like, huh, let's, let's look at this for a second. Let's see what this has to say. Um, Because who knows, you could be saving kids from more and more abuse or, you know, my dad, he also did a lot of things outside my family system too. He uh, ended up raping my babysitter. Charges were filed, but they were dropped because my dad was a, a deacon 
an elder of the community. Were they officially fire, uh, filed by like the police? Like it was like an official case? Um, so it was not an official case. It was the babysitter came forward and told her parents. Her parents confronted my parents and her parents ended up not believing her. Yes, I think it's, I think it's important to say that. that like that allegation is not something that should ever be taken lightly. Exactly. And it's a legal case. I don't think churches know that. A lot of churches don't know that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that this is a legal situation. Like right. you file this with the police, even if it's yeah. just an allegation. Like Absolutely. you go immediately to the police because it's not, it's not taken lightly. And Absolutely. it's a pretty extreme form of abuse. Was your, was your babysitter a part of your church community? She was not, but she just lived down the street. Okay. So she was part of our neighborhood community. But the, and, but the case was dropped, or your parents, her parents withdrew the case or withdrew their questions because your dad was an elder in the church. And that yes. status protected him. Yeah, from that status. Further with it. That status made my babysitter's allegations implausible. Mm. Like, there's no way that Brad would do something like that. That was a pretty, yeah, rocky or confusing. How, what was your involvement with the church? Because your dad was an yeah. elder. What was your involvement? Yeah, super involved as a kid. Um, went to church camp just about every summer. Loved church camp. Um, I played upward basketball and was in like Awanas and Girls in Action and Act Teens and yeah, we did tons of church stuff. That was a big part of my, my upbringing. How, how has that played out for you now, just as you're an adult, because you did, you did enter vocational ministry. Mm -hmm. You're still, you went to a seminary. Yeah. How does that play out for you now? Like my relationship with the church. Church and God and yeah. Yeah. Because it is, I mean, it is the very definition of spiritual abuse that a man mm -hmm. in spiritual authority, both as your parent and an elder in the church, reading his Bible yep. in his chair in the morning, and then is sexually abusing you and physically abusing you and verbally abusing you. And mm -hmm. I'm sure in ways using the Bible to mm -hmm. keep you in that. Absolutely. How does that affect you now? It's a great question. You know, by God's grace, have had the opportunity to do a ton of healing. Um, and so I walked away from the church entering college, um, just took a step away. I just had so many questions and so many doubts and of course was just really confused and angry and, um, just had a lot of, yeah, just a lot of things that I needed to process. Ended up stumbling into a campus ministry which has just been a vital player in my healing process. But yeah, I have spent a ton of, a ton of time in therapy, um, really processing all of the abuse and manipulation and my belief system and mm -hmm. coming from an abusive household and, you know, um, when I walked away from the church, I got into a lot of 
really terrible things. And so then worthlessness and devaluedness came into that area as well. And, um, and so, yeah, from, um, like the age of like 22, um, to now have been just doing a lot of my own work, um, and having to just really, um, sit and process the pain and the, the grief of, of my dad, but also of the church and the ways that, that I felt not seen or heard or understood. Um, and especially when everything fell out with my family, I think that it was really hard for many members of my church to know what to do. Like my dad was excommunicated from the church. And so the whole church knew what happened. So one, I couldn't tell my own story. It was told for me. Ugh. And then um, everyone knew. And yeah. so then it's like, oh, I'm walking in and everyone knows what has happened to me. Many of the members, it was really hard for them because this is the first time they've ever dealt with abuse. And Right. Just didn't know what to do. And mm -hmm. so, you know, I just want to encourage anybody who's listening to really take some time to understand abuse and understand um, how you as a person can, can walk through somebody in your church who has gone through abuse, because there are times that, you know, looking back on it now, I can definitely say like, oh, that was probably little t traumatic for my church. You know, like that was a trauma that my church went through because they really did believe that my dad was who he said he was. Mm -hmm. And for all of this shit to hit the fan like this, like that's probably terrifying for anybody who had kids that my dad coached or, or you know, so like there is that aspect of it. So it's like, I definitely see that. But at the same time, when people are silent or they don't know how to talk to you or look at you, oh my gosh, you walk in the building mm -hmm. because they don't know what to say, you know, a little 15 year old is going to not do really well with that because that worthlessness or feeling disgusting or not good enough is going to just be poured into her more. Mm-hmm even if that's not your intention. What I'm picturing in my head is this cute little country church where <laughs> your family is a part of it. And it's just, you know, doing its church thing. It's got, you know, Sunday worship, and it's got yeah. people and well-meaning people who probably all grew up in the same area and, you know, generations of parents and grandparents and then an elder Mm -hmm. ends up being a sex offender mm -hmm. and yeah never having encountered right. this person before what the heck do we do and then mm -hmm. now his children are continuing to come to this church what the heck do we do yeah um i can i can imagine that that would be very disrupting for their their world but then mm -hmm. also i can imagine that was very painful for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Not so having it's a dual. Help you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And they did, you know, I would say that they did a phenomenal job at 
supporting us financially. Like they found us a house. They gave my mom a job. Like they were very much for my family, which was really beautiful. Mm -hmm. So I will like forever remember that. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, they were just the bomb in that category. Um, But emotionally, I think that was where it was really tricky. Like Mm -hmm. how do we handle these five kids and their mom? Mm -hmm. No. What do we do with their emotional state? You know, engage with them knowing that they have gone through so much. And so I think that's where the church unfortunately fell short. They just didn't know how to interact in some ways, like how to even talk to their kids about what Uh, has happened. Yeah. Cause the excommunication happened in, in big church. So kids were there like, we don't, we didn't do, um, children's church. Mm -hmm. And so kids are hearing stuff that they don't really understand, but they know that Brad Gargas is no longer allowed in the church. And it's like, Mm -hmm. you know, how did, how did the parents interact with their kids about this? You know, one, yes, like the church, my church, just, this was their first case. They just had no, like they did really, I do believe that they did as best as they could, but also that there are things that the church can continue to do to understand abuse and how to talk about it and how to (laughs) hold people accountable and what it looks like to to notice certain things and not in a like let's stay in this terror mindset that anybody could be an abuser but Mm -hmm. like let's let's just be aware Mm -hmm. that it's possible it's possible in fact the likelihood that there are abusers and abuse victims in your congregation it's true it's they are there they are there that you can it's not a if it is it is true they're there right. right and as a therapist and then also with your own experience if something like this should happen in a church what would you recommend as like first step this is what you need to do and these are then some things to to look for to engage in yeah both for the victim and for the abuser what would you recommend i mean first off i i think that going back to your statement that you just made that this is already happening in the church there are abusers and abuse victims that are sitting in the church that it is important for anybody in leadership to have some sort of trauma-informed training so that when this does happen when something shows up that you are already prepared Mm -hmm. that you're not scrambling to figure out what to do Mm -hmm. Um, because unfortunately even in the best intentions when you're scrambling it's still going to hurt the victims yeah and so you know asking yourself asking the church what is it like for us to be proactive in this especially you know when we see statistics that you know statistically it's one in every three women Mm -hmm. will be sexually assaulted and one in every four, but those are just stats that have been reported, reported, Mm -hmm. right? It's probably one in every two women and one in every three men Mm -hmm. that have had Mm -hmm. some sort of sexual assault, sexual encounter that they did not want to have. Mm -hmm. 
And so if that's the case, which it is, then look into your church and see that probably half your church has, has gone through something like this. Mm-hmm. And that's just sexual abuse. And that's there's, just sexual abuse. That's there's not a whole lot of other types exactly. of traumas that someone could experience. And, and also just when you mentioned just the pattern of abuse in your family of your grandfather being a reason why your father was the way that he was not the full reason, but definitely a huge contributing factor to that. Um, Mm -hmm. If you have an abuser in your midst, which you do every church, any church listening, you have abusers in your congregation. They're there. Mm there's a whole system in place for them to be able to be that way. Yeah. And so knowing that to you're not just operating with like this one abuser and how do I deal with this one person? Right. Like there's a history, there's a system, there's yes. you, a lot going on Absolutely. That, that you need to look into and address and be addressing now. Yes. Don't just wait for them to be arrested. Yes. Um, and then there's also a book, there's several books that are important that I think leaders in the church should read. Um, one of them is by Bessel van der Kolk, Body Keeps the Score. And that's just a really great book for, I really think, any human to read, talking about the ways that your system, your body, your whole person being has, has been affected by what you have gone through, the suffering and the pain and the abuse that you have gone through as a person. There's also another book that I've just started, so I haven't read all of it yet, um, that I think is really helpful for the church. It's called Let Us Pray, but pray is spelled P-R-E-Y. And it's the plague of narcissistic pastors and what we can do about it. And this is by Arglen Ball and Daryl Pulse. It's great when we think of like, you know, yes, like here are narcissistic pastors, but just really anybody in leadership, right? Like here's a really great resource to, as a church, be like, what do we do when we have somebody in a leadership position, like my dad, like that is showing some characteristics that we're, we're not sure of, but we don't really know what they are. You know, there's this inkling that has shown up, you know, as, as lay people who haven't had trauma training or know what to look for. Um, You know, this is a good book to, to have some insight on what to do if, if you notice, when you notice somebody in your church who has some of these characteristics. In my situation, it was so covert. In, mm-hmm. in the church situation that I worked in, it was so covert. A lot of it was just feeling, like just yeah. like a gut feeling, mm-hmm. like something's not adding up, like mm-hmm. there's something off and just paying attention. Like, what is that? Like, mm-hmm. what, what is this? Just because we're in a church, just because we're in this, you know, supposed to be protective setting. Yeah. I think it's, I think it might be, I'm still formulating this theory. I think it might behoove us to stop seeing the church as this wholesome, safe, protective place Mm -hmm. and almost 
approach it like we are going we are always in a situation of working towards that place we're not Mm. in that place because of how many messy situations we have within this community we're Mm. never able to naively say we are a safe place at all times right the working theory but given the statistics that we just mentioned it might be helpful for us to just assume we're not a safe place and we are always working towards that but we can never because i think when you say that it causes you which is what i did but it's a church and then you shut it down mm-hmm. and you don't pay attention and you but but they're a pastor so you shut it down right and you don't pay attention but they're an right. elder, like they've been vetted, they've taken right. exams, they've been, you know, and then so you shut it down and you pretend. Right. And you look the other way. Yes. Because you assume it's a church. It's safe. It's a working theory. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I like that because I think that it just reminds me of sanctification mm-hmm. and that we're always supposed to be being sanctified every day and the church you know hopefully can continue to embody that model that it's like we have not arrived right there is not an arrival until we die or jesus comes back like Mm -hmm. and so if there's not an arrival then there's a striving towards and that's what i'm hearing you say is that we should be striving towards safety but knowing that there's going to be times and instances and people who come to the church or leave the church or whatever that, you know, may make the church not as safe as we want to believe that it is. Mm-hmm. And so being able to, yes, strive for that safety. We always want to strive for that safety, but yes, to not be blinded by somebody's label as pastor or elder or Sunday school teacher which is really hard mm-hmm. to do that, to not be blinded and use that as, oh, since they're this, then I, what I must be feeling is wrong mm-hmm. or downplay what I am feeling. And it's like that label does not mean that they are incapable of doing harm. Mm-hmm. Everyone is human and everyone, everyone has potential to be an abuser. Yes. Everyone does. And mm-hmm. if our statistics are as high as they are for those who have been abused, you're, the likelihood of becoming an abuser is much higher when you've been abused. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this idea that we have way more abusers in our congregations than we would ever want to think is true. Oh, I totally believe it. I totally believe it. In the few years that I've been in ministry, oh, I totally believe it. Like, not hands down no mm-hmm. doubt in my mind at all so i think it's really important to to be Absolutely. very vigilant yes vigilant. And, and never say we're good we good yeah. we got this we really do need to have certain types of training that is trauma informed and gives us a better understanding to be equipped to handle abuse and neglect and 
all sorts of things that show up in the church because it's already there. So we're not, we're not preparing for if or preparing right. for now. We are preparing for now. Many studies show that the experience of trauma can cause a disintegration of the brain, which can cause many side effects, one of which is a difficulty in regulating emotions. Gratefully, there are many things someone can do to reintegrate their brain, literally reshape, rewire, and change the brain. One of those things is the practice of mindfulness. I'll send you access to a 10-minute mindfulness meditation when you subscribe to the mailing list of tearsofeden.org. This podcast supports tearsofeden.org, a community and resource for those in the aftermath of spiritual abuse. If you know someone who might benefit from the material of the podcast or the website, feel free to share it with them. Finally, I want to invite you to take a moment to like, subscribe, or leave a review on your favorite podcasting listening apparatus. I'll see you next time.